Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. This episode features enrollment experts Kathy Dolly and Brett Schrader, who offer initial thoughts on the recruiting strategies and approaches that appear to be working for schools this year. They say that flexibility has been key during this recruiting cycle, meaning that schools willing to embrace things like test optional policies and who are willing to go that extra mile to help students complete FAFSA forms are seeing those efforts rewarded. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Office Hours with EAB. Uh, my name is Brett Schrader and uh, really thrilled to be joined today by my colleague and friend, Kathy Dolly. Kathy, Hi. welcome. Thank you, Brett. It's great to be here with you. We have lots to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely lots to talk about. We're recording this uh, just a few days after the big May 1 deadline, which uh, anyone in enrollment knows is uh, is an important date, uh, but we also know that a lot of schools recruit uh, well after their uh, May 1 date. Isn't that right, Kathy? They do, and that's long been true, but certainly even more so um, when, starting when the pandemic hit last year. Um, so the question really is, how do we finish out the fall 21 class? Um, but you and I are eager to take learnings or key takeaways from this cycle to support the startup, really, for what comes next. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so we'll definitely plan to deconstruct a little bit of what <laughs> happened over the last several months. And uh, and then, you know, really thinking ahead uh, as we come out of a pandemic, hopefully, and and move to, uh, you know, the fall 2022 and fall 2023 classes. Uh, but Kathy, just a, a quick um, sense from you, uh, you know, as you sort of think about uh, how schools landed over the last few days and 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 what worked and and maybe what didn't work, any any key things that that kind of come to mind for you? Well, Brett, as you know, as uh, we all know, that the dust is just beginning to settle. Um, but our EAB enrollment services partners, um, financial aid optimization partners, are for the most part doing quite well. Um, there are lots of successes. Um, there are some. Uh, maybe more than just some, who have some work to finish for the fall 21 class. Um, some of the takeaways for us had to do with what the pandemic taught us about being flexible. Um, and so that flexibility seems to have prevailed. Um, another commonality to the successful partners has to do with proactive welcoming of discussions about cost and financial aid, uh, recognition that this is a year of all years with respect to family, um, uh, family's ability to afford college. So I know we're going to um, talk a bit about the fallout of the pandemic, particularly on underrepresented and lower income students. But I think this applies largely to across the board. And it seems that those partners who were able to begin uh, immediately to send awards to admitted candidates um, 
earlier the better. It allowed more runway for personalization of um, those eight awards in the context of everything else that students and families are considering as they as they make this really important choice. Sure. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I know that um, you know this year uh, some of our partners were challenged uh, by uh, the Pell tables being out so late. Yes. Uh, as we all know, the Pell tables can come out any time between about October and February. And this year, it was a nice Valentine's gift of February <laughs> that they <laughs> came out. And so it's hard for some of our schools to get in that to that early uh, early. Um, financial aid offer um, mm-hmm. situation, uh, but it's so important for students, uh, and yeah. uh, and we know that uh, you know their ability to weigh some of those weigh some of those financial aid offers is just really really important. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. and you know, I know collectively at EAB, we know that there are partners who decided, well, if the Powell tables are going to be late, then we're going to make estimates. Um, and deal with the consequences of having to adjust those. Often that's an on the margin kind of adjustment when everything's said and done. And there were partners who um, had uh, flexible, again, that word, uh, strategies about those students who were selected for validation. Well, what does that mean? Can we send a preliminary award with all the right caveats? Or do those need to wait? Um, so again, some other characteristics, some learnings from this year that um, that we can use um, in the upcoming cycle. Yeah, I think that <laughs> flexibility came up again, and it's again it is, and again. <laughs> it is going to be key this year. I think uh, I, I, I sense you know one of the things I sensed from this year is students were a little bit. Um, the timetables were turned because they were so, um, you know, they, they went large, largely students were online in the fall or, or, you know, more online than they were in person. Um, then things started opening up, but we know some of the biggest districts in the country just recently opened up Mm -hmm. Boston, Los Angeles, Charlotte, um, Denver, they all recently just, just opened up. And so, as students, students were kind of turned around with, you know, is it, you know, is it time to apply? Is it time to fill out financial aid? Um, and those social cues that they get by walking down the hallway maybe weren't there. Yes. Uh, so, so schools that uh, schools that really had to f- just figure out how to how best to work with each student fared pretty well this year. Um, speaking of that, just a question on. Um, you know, what are we seeing? We know the fall was devastating for lower income students and, and even underrepresented students enrolling. Um, you know, how did uh, how did they do? Uh, how did we do this year, at least as far as we can tell now? And how did test optional play into that? Curious, curious your sense of that. Well, one of the things we seem to know, um, and it's in the mainstream press a lot, is that students Uh, underrepresented lower income students went big with their application set choices um, and probably reached a little higher up in the selectivity bucket than they might have in a different year. And I think there are winners there. Um, Something that you and I work a lot on underrepresented student uh, recruitment and enrollment and 
that this was a big year for those students. Um, and yet, um, we do know that there are partners whose um, lower income students, um, they may have been admitted, they may have deposited, but some are lagging in terms of their FAFSA um, uh, submissions. And that's going to be a problem, could be a big problem for MELT over the summer. Um, there are some latent admitted students and again, the word flexible, lots of institutions are prepared to work with them way past this candidate's reply date to get them in a good place for the fall. Um, but so it's a mixed story. Um, my takeaway is that it's a wonderful story at the Ivy League, um, for instance, um, but we still have some work to do over the spring and the summer. So. Um, we're here partly to talk about the 21 cycle, fall 21 cycle and what we've learned that will apply to 22. But Brett, you and I have some results from a student survey to share with folks today. Um, and I wonder if, if you might kick that off um, and tell folks a little bit more about when we did this, uh, how often we do it and the significant learnings there about what students had to tell us about FAFSA filing. Sure, yeah. So um, one of the things that EAB does that many folks know about is uh, about every two years, we survey a significant set of uh, students and parents. Um, in COVID time, we actually um, short-circuited our usual every other year cadence and did uh, did some special surveys as well. And so um, we, we really asked students across the spectrum, so seniors, juniors, and sophomores, and their parents, all kinds of information about how um, how they're searching for colleges, how they like to be communicated to, uh, and various other questions. And we have lots of great things to share from that, but maybe along the lines of this year and, and really future years sort of straddling those, I'll, I'll kick off with some of the things we, we saw around FAFSA filing. So this is this year we asked seniors, obviously juniors and sophomores wouldn't have filed a FAFSA, but we asked the seniors, um, you know, did you file a FAFSA? And if you did, what were some of the challenges? What were, who helped you? Uh, those kinds of things. And I, a couple of really important takeaways that I'm not sure were surprising, but I think are telling. And so sort of that point about, you know, just um, the challenging year that students had, we know it was a challenge for this last fall, uh, the fall 20 enrollment. Um, when we asked students, you know, students who are first generation or low income, um, over 30%, pushing 40%, um, said that um, it was it was difficult to complete the FAFSA. And that's 10 to 15 points more than their, their higher income peers. Um, almost 40% of first-generation students and low-income students said they did the FAFSA themselves. They didn't have help. Um, which is just a, a really important thing for us to remember. We know that the that FAFSA out there has a reputation for being difficult. Um, and when students are having to do this on their own uh, and thinking about how they ask uh, and answer some of the questions, for example, one of the questions is, how much money is in your parents' checking and savings account? Yeah. If you're doing that on your own, what a challenge. Um, do you feel comfortable asking 
your parent who may not have a lot of money in their checking account, how much is in there. Um, so, so you can see just some real sort of fundamental level challenges that are in there. Uh, and, um, and, and then the other thing to the point about students being late and maybe some opportunities to recruit over time is the percentage of low-income students who hadn't filed yet. And this was in a, a, a survey we did in February and March. The percentage of students who planned to file a FAFSA but hadn't yet uh, was, uh, was much higher than students who are high income. And so there's still a lot of running room out there, I think, to recruit students and to make sure that we're in touch with low-income students uh, so that they can sort of get across the finish line because we know the likelihood of them enrolling without having a financial aid offer in front of them, even if they've said they're coming, is pretty low. So, so just staying in front of that. Any reactions to that, Kathy? Any things that, that you, would, you would add? Well, it's just a bit sad, more than a bit sad, Brett, that we're chronicling a dimension of the pandemic year for these students, underrepresented, low income. Their safety nets of support were just not there. Um, and as you suggest, it's, a, it's an awkward question one must ask a parent, especially if that parent's struggling financially <clears throat> to declare, um, to potentially have the first conversation in a lifetime between them uh, about how much money is in their checking account. Um, mm -hmm. Beside the... Oh, the sorry. Sorry, Kat. Beside the fact that this, there are some cultural issues that go with it, asking that question, um, which makes it even more awkward. Now, we both know that <clears throat> lots of our partner institutions stepped up there. They had virtual summits for students, for parents, um, lots of financial aid nights um, in the virtual capacity. Actually, lots of folks have commented there would be safety netters who would have been helping them in their high schools in person have said that we should keep a lot of the virtual techniques we used this year across higher education in admission and in financial aid because these students, underrepresented low-income students, had wider access, more access to these uh, programs than they've ever been able to access before. Yeah, that's a, those are great points. And uh, one of the things that uh, we saw in that survey, too, is when we asked students who helped you with the FAFSA if you got help for, for low-income students uh, in particular, um, parents were number two. Uh, and and teacher teachers counselors and one important point for our partners college reps were all in the top four yeah. and and so your point about uh, having help and support um, is is huge and and for for our students uh, to to get over that hurdle to have those support networks uh, sort of taken offline with with the pandemic. And then having some uh, other step into the void there was was just a huge, mm -hmm. a hugely important thing. And and you know, Kathy, I think you recently worked uh, with the team on a um, survey of our community-based organizations uh, and heard some interesting things from them about about sort of how how things came together this uh, this year. 
We did. Um, and headliner there, Brett, had to do with the virtual techniques that were used this cycle more than ever before. They urged us to make sure that those techniques continue in the plan post-pandemic, that their students had more opportunity um, and uh, access to programming in and around campuses that they might have missed otherwise. So a keeper with that. Um, and certainly the, um, the need to personalize um, the experience for students. And we don't mean that it should that it can't be personal virtually, that it has to be in on campus or in person to be personalized. Um, there are lots of techniques that we use to make, however, the mode of communication, however, the mode of programming for events, it can be and should be uh, rather personal. Um, so the headline also from that survey and the work with our community-based organizations was, keep it up. Our students need you and they want to hear from you. That was a headliner in this student survey as well. And it was a big headline with our version of this survey within the parent audience and most especially among underrepresented families. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great point. And maybe as we sort of turn our attention to what students want and think about uh, as we pivot toward recruiting our 2022 class and our 2023 class um, and back back to that survey, which I don't think I said was probably about 15,000 students when we right. when we got it all said and done. Uh, so a significant set. Um, you know, students told us a lot about how they like to receive information. And, um, and I, you know, I guess maybe the, the biggest headline is keep doing what you're doing and do more. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but what, what are some of the things that, that kind of struck you about how sophomores and juniors, students who are rising seniors and juniors, uh, and, and really thinking about, uh, you know, those future years, uh, what struck you, uh, Kathy? Well, it's striking and not surprising at the same time how much they rely on their website experience. So our .edu um, uh, programs are absolutely important and they're digital natives, therefore their patience is very, very slim. Um, and so all of us need to look at the website experience from this notion of, um, of ease of use, but also personalization. So the survey also indicated that sophomores especially, but also juniors and seniors really wanted us to track them um, so that .edu knows their name, or at least knows, you know, what they've expressed interest in by virtue of their visit to specific um, areas of the, of the website. Um, remarkably, and we learned this in the parent version of this story as well, the website experience matters in terms of what they think about you as an institution. So bad experience, oops 
that must be a bad institution. (laughs) (laughs) And the opposite is true. Good experience. Oh, that must be a great institution. So um, you and I are not sharing here anything that our listeners don't know, but letting letting this sink in for the full force about what this means, um, I think will serve all of our partners really well. Secondly, they um, students use majors as a driver of their search um, in many ways, particularly on the web. And yet we all know from ongoing research and experience as practitioners that you can't assume that a student who's seeming to select interest in engineering will continue (laughs) to be selecting engineering by the time it's time for them to apply. So it's a little fluid, but they do search that way. They're using a lot of voice search, which is important uh, to to realize. And then we said- What is voice search? So like- Hey, Google, tell me the best engineering program in the state of X, Y, or Z. That's right. Um, And I can't pretend to know what that might mean from at a ground level to a student. Um, But just saying out loud in the living room, you know, I'd like to go to California and study biology. Well, let's do some work about (laughs) it. Mm-hmm. understanding for one institution versus another what kind of stuff gets served up to them right mm-hmm. um and again i'm sure our listeners are all over this um but coming fresh off probably one of the most challenging enrollment cycles we have ever experienced um it's it's important to be reminded about all the stuff um that we need to continue to pay attention to. Um, And then lastly, I think the role parents play, and you mentioned it, Brett, the the students admitted that their parents this year were their primary helper, their biggest influencer in this process. Um, And so parents, what they need, when they need it, um, is something we need to be very mindful of. Again, the headliner from their survey, we almost can't communicate enough. It's not too much um, with parents. They, they want to hear from, from our, our institutional partners. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that, that, and, and is it, I wonder, I, one of the things that um, I think we often talk about and I, I noticed in that survey was, was, you know, how, when do you communicate um, financial information? When do you communicate, yeah. you know, major and program information? And, and I guess my, well, we, you know, we'll have some details of this survey released on our website um, in the coming weeks. So you can dive in if you're a data wonk. I guess I would say that, you know, my general take is parents are happy to have the financial conversation early. They're happy to yeah. hear some details early on. Um, even just to get their own frame of reference, right? So they're thinking, well, you know, I, I may not need to know the penny to which I'm going to pay for this college, but it'd right. be good to know the range. Like, is it going to be a $10,000 investment? Is it going to be a $20,000 investment? <laughs> Excuse me. And then and then how does that play out into my my sort of list creation 
with my with my son or daughter? Do I put parameters on their list? Do I kind of let them let them look far and wide first? Uh, and and how that how that all sort of fits together? Absolutely, and and so you queued up the the high proportion of students who said they had trouble as seniors with the FAFSA. Arguably, some are still having trouble. What that might mean for junior student communication, let's think financial literacy for a minute. And as you suggest, Brett, Brett queuing that up early, um, our FAFSA toolkit, which listeners can find easily on our website, um, you need these six things and 23 minutes in English and Spanish for those who need an alternative language. Um, what wouldn't we be well served to kind of cue that up for juniors um, and make sure that they're feeling a little bit more confident about that part of the process when they rise into their senior year and get knee deep in into the financial details. Yeah, yeah that makes so. makes good sense. And I think the you know the interesting challenge now and what we're I think we're seeing in our in our research and and you know one of the reasons we've expanded you know the the role the DA please, plays in recruitment uh, of students is is the circuitous way we always know students have sort of circuitously found institutions, you know, but, mm -hmm. but it may be even more so now with the pandemic where, you know, you might check out 20 colleges on a website um, that lists, you know, the best colleges for engineering. And then you might travel over to a virtual tour and then you might actually show up at a, um, at a self-guided campus tour now in COVID times or a real campus tour as they come back now. And, and so how students sort of create their list um, just continues. It, it's always been a little bit circuitous, but it's probably gone from a slightly straighter line to a, a completely curvy, uh, spinny <laughs> line, it, would you say? Absolutely, Brad. And with a call, clearly the students were making this call um, to personalize their experience more. So its complexity is just increasing. And yet it defaults to some simple things. And of course, virtual tours um, are a thing and not a pandemic solution. They're here to stay. Um, we, of course, experienced the EAB virtual tour uh, spiking of visitors, um, and it's leveled off. But if you asked a student, um, will they look in that circuitous search, however they choose to make it, at a virtual tour, they're not going to say no. So, um, so we have that learning. Mm -hmm. virtual tours are here to stay um, as a supplement, as an enticement in many cases to come to campus and an essential hole that we're filling for underrepresented students who visited campus personally in, in far less numbers, even pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, we have Wiser in the EAB family now, and this is a, uh, uh, a very rich, robust, personal community 
um, for admitted students and driven largely by student ambassadors at the campus. So it's authentic, it's, it's rich with information, it's tailored, personalized, customized to individual students. Um, so there are many partners who thought they brought wiser into their portfolio of enrollment service uh, tools um, and realize now, well, that's never going away. That That's a great addition that it's a keeper. Mm -hmm. so. Well, it helps with melt prevention over the summer Absolutely. too, which, you know, mm -hmm. even for our, I know for our partners that maybe have fallen a little shy of their goals and obviously they'll keep working over the summer toward them. Um, you know, we've had several conversations just in the last few days about melt prevention, you know, so, yeah. you know, if, if you normally lose 100 students and you're able to only lose 70, you're plus 30. Um, and if you were 30 short, um, now you're now you're flat. So, um, so melt prevention, and, and I know Wiser helps that because it helps um, students feel like they're part of the institution uh, after they're admitted and as they decide to enroll uh, over the summer. I wonder, um, you know, how do you see along those lines, how do you see sort of um, the summer playing out? You know, we know a lot of orientations are still going to be online. Um, we know, um, or maybe pieces of them online. Um, what are some other ways, uh, you know, sort of back to the back to the summer communication? What are ways you can balance the needs of your incoming, immediately incoming class, and then the desire of maybe juniors and sophomores to to start getting getting you on their list for for the future classes? Well, it's toggle time, as I've been saying for many, many years in enrollment. <laughs> <laughs> and it probably started a month or two ago in terms of recruiting the next class. Um, our partners um, and their teams know how to do this, but there's absolutely a very mindful, intentional um, plan uh, that needs to be or is in place uh, for landing the class, helping all of those students move in to campus in the fall. Um, partners exist on the campus for that purpose. And so there's this larger set of colleagues on a campus, departments, um, activities that can be very supportive in that effort and need to begin uh, receiving a handoff. Um, and then simultaneously, there's all of the startup for early application marketing campaigns. And August 1st is very big for rising seniors, Common App and, and so forth. Um, so it is that moment where we're almost doubling up on what is critically important. But I think all our partners are very accustomed to that. Um, and so here we go again. And Brett, you and I um, came together today to record this for our, our listeners. Um, you know, May 1 has come and gone. Now what? Um, and we've spoken I hope in helpful ways about now what for the fall class, as well as now what for, what have we learned that informs the next um, cycle? I think we, uh, I'll point to a few things and then let you um, bring us home here, but 
flexibility prevails. I personally hope that we've learned through this pandemic how appreciative, valuable, and productive from a recruitment sense it is to be very flexible. Um, So there's that personalization in a variety of different modes, whether that's on a Zoom or on campus, um, that very, very much matters. Um, Parents matter a lot. And so um, planning out, adding to refining a conflow and a flow of events for parents is really important. Digital engagement is here to stay um, in so many dimensions of what we call digital uh, these days. Um, And financial literacy for upcoming classes, as well as getting out ahead um, in the next cycle um, as early as one possibly can with financial aid awards. That really helped this year. Definitely. Uh, Yeah, I, I think that's a great summary of of our talk today i know we touched on a lot of topics and and i think you know the adage with all these new tools i think you know uh, some things haven't changed and that's you know you have to focus on each individual student you do to some degree recruit them one by one and every student comes to it from a different place and so you have to be ready to meet them where they are uh, and and then take them uh, through the process uh, that you have, and and I think your your point about flexibility. If there's if there's no other learning from today, you know, understanding that flexibility helps you do that, um, and uh, and I think it's why you and I are excited about all the things that um, that we're uh, we're seeing ahead for our partners who work with some of the tools that EAB has to help recruit classes because we really see them as. As, as opportunities to um, as opportunities to to be flexible and to meet students where they are and um, and and hopefully hopefully land those classes uh, right on the button uh, on on May one or a little after if you have to <laughs> or a little after or whenever or whenever um, right yeah. Uh, well, we are really excited to have everybody join us today. Thanks, Kathy. Um, always fun uh, talking with you, uh, whether we're recorded or not. So, um, so, so de- definitely happy to have you today. Um, and uh, we will uh, we will sign off and and thank everyone for coming. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please join us next week when our guests share strategies to help women working in higher education push through barriers to reach their career goals. Until then, thank you for your time.